Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, the last in a second five-part series on the 90th anniversary of broadcasting in Hong Kong to coincide with the 90th birthday of RTHK. You can also go and see an exhibition on the 90th anniversary at the Hong Kong Heritage Museum, which is on until February the 25th. In this week's programme, I start by talking with veteran commercial radio broadcaster Joel DeLacy, who next year will mark his 40th anniversary at commercial radio. Well, when I joined, I was interviewed by the then general manager, Nick DeMuth, who said to me, you will stay and do the job. We don't want someone who's going to only be here two months and then leave. And that was like 39 years ago or something. Um, my first job was actually answering phones for the phone-in program with Aileen Bridgewater, March 1979. I remember the first call that I took was from band leader Joe Loss, who was visiting on the Queen Elizabeth liner at Ocean Terminal. And he was? Well, he was the band leader. He was a very well-known band leader. I'd never heard of him before, but I still remember the very first call I took. He was a, an arranged interview because we would get a lot of calls from members of the public, but we'd always arrange interesting interviews because sometimes, like in all phone, phone-in shows, people sometimes don't call. You've got to fill it up. Well, of course, Ailing was one of the talk show hosts, but we also had Tony Lawrence, the respected BBC correspondent. He would also do the talk show five days a week at one stage. But it was always difficult because he was so knowledgeable and interesting, he would start to talk about a subject and give three, four minutes talking about, I do remember him talking about North Korea even in those days in the, in the 80s, and then at the end of it he'd say, what do you think of that? And no one could call in because he'd given such a good information about the subject. But other people we had, what, Norman Wingrove, Jack Spackman, who used to be an editor of The Star, uh, but also on-air stuff, we had so many people over the years, so many names like Jim Nicholson, Pat Chang in the early days, Rennie Marcus, who's actually still working here at part-time, Mickey Mock, a program Jimbo and Jono, which was a very interesting program where they would sort of rhyme their whole 15 minutes. A lot of work went into that. People like Mike King, Rick O'Shea, who went on to... FM Select and then into China for many years. People like Felicity Stapley. Steve Britton used to work with us. He left and went to BFBS, who was in Brunei for many, many years. People like Ashton Farley, whose catchphrase was, it sold a million. Tony Orchez, who they used to call Hong Kong's Johnny Mathis because he sounded like that. He released quite a few records. I just wish I'd kept a diary because so many people have worked here over the years that I've forgotten all their names. Joel DeLacy there, who we hear from again later in the programme. In 1990, the Hong Kong government reformed radio broadcasting regulations, allowing the introduction of a third radio station. It released the licence to Metro Radio, which still remains hugely popular. The Metro Broadcast Corporation is owned by Chung Kong Holdings and Hutchison Wampoa. Highlights have included the Horror Hotline Show, presented by Eddie Poon, where listeners could ring in and tell their spooky stories of ghosts and other creepy tales. These days, programming covers the whole spectrum, from finance to science to entertainment. And Metro Plus covers a number of non-Chinese-speaking communities in Hong Kong, with programming targeted at Filipinos, Indonesians and others. Filipino broadcaster Michael Vincent often tops Hong Kong listenership surveys and is programming director at Metro Plus. The 90s saw huge developments in media in Hong Kong, with new cable and satellite stations as former senior government official Rachel Cartland explains. 
I was suddenly now the Deputy Secretary Responsibility for Broadcasting Policy. And it was a very fraught time. It was the early 1990s, and it was a fascinating time because it was basically the birth of cable TV, satellite TV, the big fight between some of the biggest business titans in Hong Kong. We had Wharf on one side and Hutchison on the other, Star TV, with a very young Richard Lee. And RTHK was part and parcel of that. I'd have to say sometimes it was a minor part of the schedule because we were so preoccupied with these major regulatory issues for the commercial broadcasters. But it was there all the same. And we did our very best to look after RTHK too. It it was an important component all the same of the broadcasting scene as a public service broadcaster with a different role from all the others. And during those years, we were looking very closely at whether RTHK could be corporatized, whether it could stop being a government department and instead have a a structure and function more like, say, the BBC as an independent corporation with some sort of lump sum revenue that allowed it more freedom to operate. In the end, the decision was taken not to do that. I felt it was a pity. We'd done an awful lot of work on how a corporation structure could operate, and it was perfectly viable as far as we could see. And I thought then that it would be altogether a more reasonable and viable way for a broadcaster to uh, function. If you have something like RTHK as a government department, they get really tied up in all the government procurement procedures, the staff hiring and so on, which may make a lot of sense for a standard government department, but not so much for a broadcaster, which ought to be a bit nimble on its feet. Although, having said all that, nowadays, looking at the shenanigans in the BBC and some of the scandals that come out of that, and looking at RTHK, which despite being government department, I still consider an admirable broadcaster, which does a good job. I think, mm, well, it wasn't so bad after all that it had to soldier on as a government department. What differences do you think would have happened to RTHK had it lost the government leash? Uh, well, you might have been earning a mega salary. At- <laughs> <laughs> Rachel Cartland there. June the 30th, 1997, was of course the handover. So here's a bit of sound from the archives. Prince Charles, Prime Minister Tony Blair. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, the national flag of the People's Republic of China and the regional flag of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region of the People's Republic of China have now solemnly risen over this land in Hong Kong. Just cross to Chris Shah, who's a reporter outside the Legislative Council building. Chris, what's happening there? Expectation is high here as we wait for the Democratic Party leader, Martin Lee, to come and give his uh, set-piece speech. (laughs) 
1984, the British and the Chinese governments signed what is called the Sino-British Joint Declaration, promising Hong Kong people and the world that there would be one country, two systems, Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong with a high degree of autonomy. Let's cross now to James Lee, who's with the protesters in Wan Chai. James, what's happening there? Hello. Uh, there, there are hundreds of uh, people here. Uh, in fact, there are just about uh, a dozen demonstrators, mostly from the April the 5th Action Group and the uh, People's Constitutionalist Society. Um, some of them were holding banners like uh, down with Li Peng, and there's uh, one person holding a picture of the, a dead person who was killed during the June the 4th action. Well, we're being pushed now. Uh, some of them were trying to push against, push against the gates uh, very close to the extension of the uh, convention and exhibition centre. James Lee, reporting from the then very new Hong Kong Convention and Exhibition Centre in Wan Chai. James is now the head of English news at RTHK. Hong Kong's last governor, Chris Patton, would leave aboard the yacht Britannia. Here, Hugh Chiverton, head English programme service at RTHK, talks about a favourite radio programme of Mr Patton's. Well, a long-running feature in uh, English radio has been Letter to Hong Kong, and uh, Chris Patton liked this very much as a platform. Indeed, he published a set of them at the very end of his career. He enjoyed this, and and he enjoyed doing doing the reading and so on. I used to quite often produce it for him, so I'd go in and record it. And, you know, you heard a set time. I think it was 15 minutes, I think. And you had to fit in with 15 minutes. And this is before you could speed up and slow down tape so easily. And so I remember one occasion when we were recording it and the recording went fine and uh, at the end he said, how was that? And I said, oh, it was fine. I said, it was a little bit long, unfortunately, because, you know, I said, we, you know, it'll crash into the programme afterwards. And he said, well, I'm sure you can fix that. After all, I am the governor. I did actually repeat that to Donald Jung once and it went down like a complete lead balloon. <laughs> Huge gibbet in there. In 1998, popular and controversial commercial radio host Albert Cheng would be the victim of a brutal slashing attack. Here, Joel DeLacy describes the event. Yes, in 1998, I was in the newsroom on the first floor with about five other people. The security guard came in, said something, and everyone jumped up. And I said, what's happened? They said, there's fighting in the car park. So I went downstairs. There was nothing in the car park. But outside the front of the building, our host, Albert Cheng, who hosted the very top-rating morning interview comment program was lying on the ground there was three people standing there and well there was a lot of blood around because he'd been attacked by I think two people who attacked him with choppers and he was lying on the ground and people were sort of standing back not knowing what to do so I went and got some tourniquets and tied around his arms and legs and you could see in his suit he had a lot of cut marks from the razor sharp knives that he'd been cut with and there was a big pool of blood under him, so I sort of held his arm because I didn't want him to move, and I sort of said, I can hear the ambulance coming, but actually I couldn't, but that was for a couple of minutes there, and everyone was sort of standing back, the three people there, because they didn't really know what to do, and within a few minutes, the police arrived, and I sort of stood up and held my hands out in front because I was covered in blood at that stage, and I stepped back because the police had a first aid kit, 
And I went back inside, washed the blood off my hands and went back to my computer and thought, I need to type this story up for the 7 o'clock news. So shaking hands, I typed up the story and went downstairs and read it. And, and I said in the, in the story that you know, ambulance men are still working on Albert Chang just a few metres from where I'm sitting on the other side of the wall. And my voice was very shaky that day because no one really knew what had happened or why. And actually, in the end, no one ever really figured out why it was attacked. Was it political? Was it personal? But security was greatly increased in the building after that. And for the next year, after Albert came back to work, he was with policemen every day who were guarding the uh, floor that he was on. Joel DeLacy there. And now onto something a little lighter. In the lead-up to Christmas every year, RTHK and the South China Morning Post jointly organise the Operation Santa Claus fundraising campaign, which supports between 10 and 15 charity projects. The current campaign recently celebrated its 30th anniversary. But RTHK also had an earlier version of Operation Santa Claus in the 1960s. Here, former Deputy Director of Broadcasting, Taikin Man, takes up the story. It is a very amazing program. Yeah, it's a very important project to me. I think it's a friendship project of the English programming. But actually, when it's not using the, the term Operation Santa Cross, it is a joint effort between the Chinese program and English program. Uh, now we are sitting in Chim uh, Sa Chui, you know. At that time, in the mid-60s, we have the Operation Santa Claus during the Christmas time. It is a fundraising event, you know. Ask the callers to call in, to donate money, and uh, they organize a uh, lot of uh, charity events, such as uh, charity dance or that sort of thing. At that time, they have some sort of a song dedications. I have a song dedicated to who, and then I will pay certain amount of money. And it generated lots of publicity and did raise a lot of money. One of the interesting features, when they promote the programs, they even have a floating studio in Victoria Harbour with a Christmas tree <laughs> on, on, a, on, a, on a floating studio. So yeah, how so do you mean? it Was it sort of a studio on a boat? It is actually a, a, a live broadcasting prawn. Instead of sitting in a studio, and also at that time, when the donation amount of money is high enough, one of our you know, senior program staff, a senior program manager, will jump to the Victoria Harbour. <laughs> yeah, so, so when was this? Oh, that was in the mid-60s. Sometime in the 70s, it gradually phased out, and then it come back again in the 80s. At that time, it's uh, mainly organised by the English programming, uh, that means Radio Free and also in, with joint collaboration with uh, South China Morning Post. Yeah, that was uh, coming in, in, in the late 80s. And that was the former Deputy Director of Broadcasting, Tai Kin Man. In early 2003, Hong Kong would become the epicentre of the deadly SARS outbreak, severe acute respiratory syndrome, which killed more than 280 people in the city. James Lee, head of English news for RTHK, and Mike Weeks, a senior news producer and presenter of the Radio 3 flagship news programme, Hong Kong Today, look back at that time. If we were to go back to the time of SARS, I was actually the assignment editor at the time, so I was actually sending out reporters to cover the SARS outbreak. We had to have surgical masks to protect our staff, and we went as far as getting N90, very solid kind of masks, 
to protect our reporters because even the surgical masks were not uh, strong enough to filter out the virus. So we had to have those. Uh, we also had to have overall gears, white overall, plastic overall called barrier men, which were used by medical staff and people who went out and, and go into the epicenter of the outbreaks. And we had to have gloves and goggles and headgears uh, and even boots to make sure that they are safe. And then once they come back from locations, they have to all throw away the gloves and the overalls and also have their hands washed and, and so forth complicated times for you just as an assignment editor i mean you know aside from trying to get new stories every day well absolutely we consider ourselves being a public broadcaster we had to uh, continue to broadcast so during the the heights of the outbreak basically the streets were deserted shops were deserted Schools were closed for a whole month, but we were still out reporting. And it so happens in 2003, my wife was pregnant at the time and uh, my, my son was born in May that year. So it was just a, a few days before Hong Kong was declared cleared. Exciting, scary. <laughs> I mean, I remember sort of getting on the MTR and there would be almost no one in carriages uh, walking down Nathan Road that was empty in Chim Sa Choi, which you just can't believe when you look at it today. And there was that real feeling that, you know, we were cut off from the world, we were quarantined. But here at RTHK, people were going out to press conferences and they were coming back. You know, people were going to the Prince of Wales Hospital to where there was, you know, there was all the SARS patients were being treated and things like that. And I thought, you know, if there's any any place I'm ever going to catch SARS, the most likely place is here in the newsroom. <laughs> so we went through that whole period, sort of terrified that you were going to come down with this virus. And then, you know, any little niggle, like you got a niche in your throat or you started to snivel, and you thought, this is it, I'm getting SARS. And I found the best treatment was to go down the club that we used to have at RTHK still at that time and have a, a large whiskey and lemon made by Henry, which often made me feel better. In more recent years, the Occupy protests of 2014 were an exciting time for news coverage. Here, James Lee describes the first night. Well, the most difficult part was the decisions to declare the start of the Occupy movement by Benny Tai because I was at that time working late shift and suddenly the students started climbing over the fence into Civic Square and I was the only one in the in the office and I had to actually listen to Benny Tai declaring occupied uh, starts and so I had to immediately cut the soundbite and then put it out on air and students were climbing over fence and then the whole thing started and so I had to immediately look for people to, to come in and, and help and report. Our reporters were very active and very conscious about this whole event so some of them were willing to start covering the events overnight uh, and then the next morning I was working overnight myself and when the tear gas started I was actually back home resting my assignment editor called me up and said let's go and get more people in and, and so I had to rush back to the office to, to see the coverage and all our staff were out on, in the streets and covering the event obviously safety is our priority and during some of the clashes in Hong Kong we were worried about the safety of our reporters because um, things were being thrown uh, and so we had to get helmets and we immediately went out to uh, Hong Kong to find shops that could sell helmets. And we also had prepared jackets with the label press at the back to identify that they are reporters. 
But it turned out that having a, a vest with the word pressed at the back actually is a disadvantage for s- some of the reporters because they became targets of attack. So, so some of them had to take them off and make sure that just, just to have a helmet on their heads and protect themselves. And that was James Lee, head of English news at RTHK. As I come towards the end of these two five-part series on the history of broadcasting here, I feel that I've merely scratched the surface. I'll enjoy delving into the RTHK archives to discover more items to play. But I also can't wait for an archive law to be introduced in Hong Kong, because so much of the old reels of TVB and other stations have simply disappeared, which is such a shame. I couldn't fit everything in, but look forward to returning to some of the presenters next year. Meanwhile, here's Jim Gould, head of Radio 3, talking about a couple of veteran presenters from the station. So we've got a lot of well-established uh, presenters and we're trying to bring in sort of younger, newer people as well for the sake of variety. Ray Cordero, for instance, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be familiar with uh, Uncle Ray. Last week we celebrated his 94th birthday. <laughs> Uncle Ray, 94 years old. He's in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's most durable radio DJ. Long may he continue. Hey, don't touch that dial, you're at the right place. No matter where you are at this time of the day, it's RTHK all the way with Ray. Um, also, Steve James, uh, to mention another of our well-established presenters. Uh, Steve recently won a very important award from the Asia Broadcasting Union. Uh, he was judged to be top on-air personality. According to a study, doing brain training exercises will not slow mental decline. As if I needed an excuse to put down the crossword puzzle and fire up Netflix. Now, this is an organisation, the ABU, Asia Pacific Broadcasting Union, to give it its full title. It has uh, a membership in the region which has a capacity to reach three billion listeners. So being judged top on-air personality with a potential audience of that size, that's not bad. And this is a quick medley or montage of the Radio 3 shows that haven't had a mention yet. A subcommittee of the Law Reform Commission will now consult the public for three months on the way forward, as Damon Pang reports. Who ordered the firing of tear gas? End of four days play, the score shows New Zealand leading Pakistan by 198 runs, with six second innings wickets remaining. Do you think there is still this uncertainty that that Eddie Chu could clear this up? He could give a very unambiguous statement without qualifications. Has been tightened without consulting Hong Kong people, without the notice of Hong Kong. Shares on Wall Street have plunged on fears of slowing economic growth after the US Treasury yield curve inverted. And as we always do, let's say hi to Steve, broadcast uncle Vines. How are <laughs> Good you? Good morning. Good to see you. What's happening this <laughs> well, week? Well, um, you, you mean... Um, right, five minutes past two o'clock. You're listening to the 123 Show with me, Noreen Mayer, on this Wednesday afternoon. on Radio Pumping blood by No 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 in our song by segment. More Shiba featured in Artist Profile, brought to us by Simon Wilson. Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to the Juice. Guten Abend and welcome to the Juice. Plenty of stuff on This today week on our last show of the year, World Vibes offers a year-end roundup of some of the best hits we played throughout the year. Join me for two hours of first-rate seasonal jazz, guaranteed to be nothing like the Christmas stuff you're hearing in the supermarket. Urdu program Hong Kong ki sham haritwar ki shabad baskar paanch minute par. Interviews, Kelor Kiladi, Mazabor Sakafat. 
our weekly news and entertainment show for Hong Kong's Filipino community. Good morning, kids. You're listening to The Sunday Smile, and I'm your host, Candy Smooth. Paul Haswell. Carolyn Wright. The Pop Fugitives with The Sunday Escape. This was the era when you had exercise winding up the gramophone, having to get out of your couch to turn the record over. It's the Sunday session with the homie Simon Wilson. RTHK bang loud through the building. Nepali Bhatsama Samachar. अंतरवार्ता सरकारी सेवाहरू बारे जानकारी तथा चर्चित नेपाली गीत Good evening and welcome to Newswrap with Anna-Marie Evans and Jim Gould. Tonight, Justice Secretary Theresa Cheng won't be prosecuted for illegal alterations to her home, though her husband will be. And to finish up, I head to the office of the head of Radio 4 at RTHK, Jimmy Shu. Radio 4 was established in 1974, and next year will mark its 45th anniversary. So I'll be doing a full half-hour show on Radio 4 early next year, showcasing the world of classical music, the composers, conductors and musicians who present the programmes and their famous guests over the years. But here's Jimmy Shu going right back to 1929, and the first concert held by the radio station, now known as RTHK, but then as ZBW. In the year 2014, when RTHK Radio 4 was celebrating our 40th anniversary, was a piece of information we got from uh, Media Digest. In that particular issue of Media Digest, we got uh, some information about a concert which took place on October the 8th, 1929. Um, it's like almost 89 years ago. And uh, it was Radio Hong Kong, which uh, was the first uh, concert officiated by the Colonial Secretary, Sir Wilfred Thomas Suffern. And it was a radio address at 9 p.m followed by legislator the honorary Dr. Cold War, his welcome in Chinese. And that was a live concert. In the record, uh, we found Chopin's Etude in A-flat, Rimsky-Korsakov's Indian Song for Violin, and Who Buy My Lavender for Soprano. And the beaming eyes for baritone. So these are uh, traces of uh, early days uh, music broadcast on Hong Kong's airwaves. Was there any Chopin? Uh, the Chopin attitude in A flat. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the thing is, with uh, that attitude, um, it's difficult to say because uh, Chopin wrote two attitudes in A flat. Not sure whether it's the more familiar one or the other one. Which do you prefer? The, the one which is more familiar, which is called Aeolian Harp.
I certainly just hope that RTHK will somehow or other manage to maintain this independence of thought that it's always shown, its commitment to letting different voices have their say. And the culture of RTHK, as far as I can see from what I know of it today, is fortunately extremely strong. So one should be quite hopeful about what it can do and what it will be. My thanks to Jimmy Shu, Jim Gould, James Lee, Mike Weeks, Taikin Mann, Rachel Cartland, Hugh Chiverton and Joel DeLacy and to all the people who have given their knowledge over the 10 programmes. My thanks also to my colleague Jenny Pang who helped me with research and contacts. Thanks for listening and here's wishing you a very happy Christmas. Do join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Some 